Well, this morning we have an especially wonderful treat in our passage of Scripture. And I want to just share with you, you know, as I said last week, sometimes people look at all of these events as disjointed. You know, it's like, okay, he did this and then he did that. But when you really get a feel for exactly what was happening at the time, Jesus made the best of every single opportunity that was afforded to him as he spread the gospel throughout the region of Galilee. And he's now going to minister in a, a new setting. And so we find him, just a couple more miracles this morning, we find him as the fisherman, one of my favorite analogies of the way the Lord works in the world. Amen. Uh, you know, if you haven't figured out by now, I'm, well, I'm addicted. I, I, I trout fish and I can't help myself at times but you know when I go and I I'm fishing I'm always reminded of the 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 connection that we have as the body of Christ and having first been caught by the Lord and then going out and catching fish for the Lord amen so we're really engaged in that because Jesus declared and and said to us the the great commission is to go ye therefore into all of the world and make disciples go fishing and so we find this first incidence of him really coming into contact uh, with the fishermen of Galilee. And so we'll see that. And then the second one is, is Jesus, you know, one of the bad things about fishing is you got to clean the fish. Amen? If, if you're a fisher person here, and you ladies can fish as well, you know, so if you're a fisher person this morning, one of the things you have to do is you got to clean the fish. You know, because they, they, you know, you can't cook them unless you clean them. And so the Lord can't use us unless we've been cleansed, amen? So we have these two things linked together, what the Lord does. First, He catches fish, shows us how to fish, and then He takes and does that work that needs to be done in our life of cleansing us. And these two beautiful pictures uh, that the Lord would have for us this morning. And before we dig into the Word, we'll be in chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day. Lord, we wonder what it was like to be one of the disciples, or maybe just to be in the crowd, to step out of the little tiny town of Capernaum and to walk down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee with you. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would just cause us to be there, Lord, to take us to that place to where you can minister through the sweetness of your Spirit, Lord, to each of us. Lord, give us hearts that are inclined to hear what your Spirit would say this morning. Bless us. Anoint our time in your Word, Lord. Cause it to come to us in a way that we can retain it and grow from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you just a, a little bit. You know, as we said last week, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, approximately 240 towns at that time, ancient, much like Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was actually one of the larger villages, as you see the word village. There were villages and there were towns. You'll see villages and towns. That was the equivalent today of maybe a little tiny community and more of a city. So there were villages and towns. Capernaum was technically a village, but it was a large village. And it was a fisherman's village. It sits 
on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a very prominent kind of a plain where the Jordan River is created, an alluvial plain as the river came in. So there was great farming opportunity. There was also fishing opportunity. So you had both those things there in Capernaum, some short foothills that would flow up away from the Sea of Galilee. And so what you had there in that village was a fishing village, and fishermen used fishing boats, amen? Uh, Probably some of you have heard of the Jesus boat. Uh, This is actually a picture of the Jesus boat. It's been dated to about 2,000 years ago, and so it was. this boat was literally from exactly the same time period of Jesus of Nazareth. And furthermore, it was found in the region of the town of Capernaum. And so if you go there today, there's this gigantic building that houses the single boat. Uh, it's a controlled environment because it's, it's relatively weak in its structural integrity, as you can see by all of these uh, metal brackets holding the boat together. But these fishing boats were actually relatively large. This one happens to be the better part of 30 feet long. Uh, the beam length, the width in the middle is about 8 or 9 feet. And so it's a rather large boat, actually. So this would have been the type of boat that we're going to see in our study this morning. And the interesting thing is, is that those boats uh, plied this, this inland lake, if you will. It's just a large lake, a very placid lake normally. And, uh, of course, out on the Sea of Galilee, the hotels that are in this photo were not there. The high-rises and all of those types of things came along much, much later. But you can perhaps see in the distance on that far mountain ridge, that's where Nazareth is. And so this picture is actually taken from the city of Capernaum looking south, uh, towards the hillside, uh, there in the foreground, a little settlement. Uh, just beyond it would have been the city of Tiberias in the next little bay there. And so uh, here along the shore of Galilee still are these little settlements, these little cities that are along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, with Nazareth in the background up there on the ridge, uh, about 1,100 feet uh, above the Sea of Galilee. It's only 16 miles away. So as you can see, when you read these stories, these accounts, These were walking distance for Jesus and the disciples. These were not, you know, we kind of look at, well, you know, Nazareth was here and Jerusalem was there. These are not huge distances. It's only 65 miles to Jerusalem from here. So uh, it's not a long way. Uh, Quite a bit of altitude on both shores. So if you were to go to the eastern shore, which is over in modern-day Jordan, uh, you would have found the city of Chorazin. And so one of the cities here, it appears that Jesus walked kind of around the north shore and and would go to the other side of the lake, uh, quite a bit more desolate there. And so uh, in in what you see here, you kind of get a picture of of how this this worked, and of course, what you wouldn't have found uh, was all of the Hebrew guys riding a banana tube. That's that's kind of the way it goes today. You know, you go to the shore of Galilee, and it's much like any resort area in the world, and lots of hotels and things going on, and you find Hasidic uh, Jewish young men like these guys with their yarmulke, their skull cap on. You can't quite see it because their hair is black and their yarmulke is black, but they're all out there on this banana tube with their prayer beads hanging from there. Uh, usually very much just like American swim trunks, you know, so they put on their, their Oakleys or their, you know, their O'Neills or whatever and then go out and have some fun. So at that day and time, as the disciples gathered together, 
as, as they're going to be collected, if you will, and fished for, uh, we find first Jesus, the master fisherman. And so verse 1 here in chapter 5. And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Very important that you understand Jesus has already made an impact in the people who were around this region. They actually were coming to hear the word of the Lord. There was something different about what Jesus was saying and how he was saying it. I had an interesting thing that happened yesterday, and I've shared with you before that very often in Harvest Crusades and things that we do as Calvary Chapel, we have these protesters that show up. Uh, we had one of those yesterday, and so I took it upon myself to uh, talk to him. And so as I was sharing, I was sharing with this man who's holding a sign, you all are heathen and you're going to die and go to hell. I asked him how many fish he had caught. That was one of my questions to him. I said, how many people have you actually led to? Well, you know, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to rebuke you. I said, can you show me the passage of scripture where uh, there is a ministry of rebuking to the body of Christ that, that, that was undertaken by any of the disciples? And well, you know, he just got mad or his face got Red. He actually called. He wanted to fight me. That's that's exactly. And I was thinking to myself, well, that'd be kind of silly. Uh, but <laughs> you, here I'm talking to this guy, and and because of the word of the Lord, I just kept confronting him with scripture after scripture after scripture, and he's just getting more frustrated and more frustrated. He finally left. The Word of God does that. It, it goes forth and does what it intends to do. And, you know, ten minutes later, he's just like, well, I'm not winning any here, so I'm, he's out of here. They came to hear the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord has power. It's sharper, Hebrews says, than a two-edged sword. And it divides between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It gets in and does what God intended it to do. And the Lord is now going to collect a few fish. He's going to minister uh, to the disciples. And so the crowd standing there by the lake of Gennesaret, when you see that, it's the Sea of Galilee. It's the same body of water. So the lake of Gennesaret. And the crowd's kind of following with him. They're like, this is awesome. You see, because they didn't have, you know, the Kerkorian theaters. They didn't have, you know, the race zone to go to. The big deal was go to synagogue and see who says what and then kind of talk about it. Debate about it. I like that. I wish we did more of that in church. As we hear the word of the Lord, we gather together, and it's like we, you know, what, you know, what, Pastor Jeff is nuts. What did he say? You know, kind of thing, and, and and allow the Lord to take the word out that way. And so it was that they stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. The inference there is they're pulled up on the shore, but they were fishing boats. And but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And that was a daily routine as they used these jute nets that were largely made out of uh, fibers that were twisted together. You know, they didn't have nylon and extruding machines and all those kind of things. They literally handmade their nets. They were not very big, normally 20 feet wide or so, normally fashioned in the form of a circle. They were throw nets, and they had little weights on them that were normally rocks tied to the edge. If you go today, if you take a tour on the Sea of Galilee, one of the things that they will do is they'll take out a gill net, not named after me, by the way, but one that catches the gills of the fish because they're a little prickly, 
uh, they'll take one of those nets and throw them over the top of the school of fish. And as the fish try and swim away, they get hung up in the net. They'll pull them up and drag them back into the boat. And so they're washing their nets. They're getting the debris out of the nets. They're picking the sticks out, repairing any holes. That's what they're doing. And then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And this is where the story begins to really become interesting. Jesus hops into one of the boats. Now, I can tell you at that day and time, that wasn't something just anybody did, because that boat was the livelihood of the fishermen. It was much like someone's donkey. If you lost your boat or if you lost your donkey, you lost your livelihood. So Jesus has taken a little bit of liberty here with Peter. And so he gets into Simon's boat and asks him to put it out a little from land. He says, just kind of shove me out just a few feet offshore. He's going to use the natural properties of the water to bounce his voice off there. For those of you that are fishermen, again, the one of the things that makes us the maddest is when people don't realize that their voice carries for a mile across a body of water. It skips off the water, and those sound waves are compressed, and they stay right at the water level. So Jesus would have had no problem speaking to these people by simply using the water to amplify his voice. And so he says to them, he says, ah, push me out a little bit from land. And he sat down and taught the multitude. He's got a pulpit. He, he's using the boat, in essence, for a place to teach from because the crowd could have then got onto the beach area, in that area of the Sea of Galilee to this day, uh, wherever you have a little bit of a cove, they're almost all occupied, and they're almost all devoid of plants and trees and bushes. So he has kind of a little natural amphitheater uh, there. There's a church there today that you can go and visit of this spot. And so he begins to speak. And when he had stopped speaking, so he's shared a message that we're not privy to. He's ministering to the crowd. And I believe, and this is just what I think, I believe that what follows is an illustration of what he taught. I believe that he had been speaking to them already, and he's now going to illustrate the point. And so what he says is, Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, I want you to see the response, because this is flesh-talking, what happens next. This is you. This is me. When we rely on simply our own experience and not the work of the Holy Spirit. You have to love Peter. I love Peter. Peter is my hero because I'm so much like Peter. I'm impulsive at times, a little loud at times. I have a tendency to trust in my own abilities at times. Anybody else like that? Probably all of us guys are. He says, And Simon answered to him, Master, We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down my net. The inference is there in the original language, he's going to humor Jesus. It's like, well, okay, you know, I'm, I, I kind of hate to do this to you because you're not a fisherman, but we'll put down a net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they filled up both the boats. And so they began when to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the feet of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know why he would have said that? Because the previous chapter said Jesus went into all the region preaching the gospel. 
So that message we're not privy to was a message of the gospel. That's the only way that Peter could have come to this conclusion. Master. Because we have no inference that there was really a, a lot of preaching that was done in Peter's life up to this point. Peter heard the message and he responded. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were the other boat, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So they have like the, you know, the disciples fishing club or whatever. We don't know. They probably had little business cards, refrigerator magnets even, which, you know, could go in your fridge at home. They were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. There's an oft-missed point to this. It seems as though they reaped that great harvest of fish and left the fish in the boat. That's what faith does. Faith says, you know what, I'm following you, Lord. There's a great harvest over here. How many of us experience that little simple thing in our lives? Yeah, you could go on after that maybe bigger career or larger home or those things which we would think would be something that God wants for us. But how often they're a trap of the enemy because they consume all of our time and our talent and our treasure. They take the resources, the riches that God wants us to use for his glory, and they really occupy us with those things as opposed to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so it appears that they left these boats both of them now loaded with fish right on the shore. And it's like, man, I'd rather learn how to fish. I'd rather follow him and learn how to fish for men than have this big harvest of fish that are just fish. We can always get more fish. Family of God, if God wants you to have more fish, he can give you more fish. But he always wants you to be out after the souls of men fishing for men. And so Jesus takes over, and I want to just give you a little uh, view of this. It's so important for us to understand it. Jesus was the creator God. This wasn't something hard for him. Now, I don't know whether he just simply called to all the fish in the Sea of Galilee and said, come on over here, I've got to illustrate a point, and if you could just kind of gather yourself in this one spot. I don't know what he did, but I know what Colossians says about him, that he is the invisible of the image of God, uh, that he's the firstborn over all creation, that all things were created by him, whether they're on earth or in heaven, Jesus made them. Amen? And they were actually created for him. So when you look at this from a biblical perspective, Jesus was simply being who Jesus is. He's creator God. And so he commands the fish to come. But you have a little situation here, where, and I think it's really cute, because the Lord notices all of these little simple things that perhaps you and I would miss. I want to encourage you, notice the simple things that perhaps people would miss, because God can use them. He doesn't have to use, you know, miracles every day. He can use you every day. He can use me every day. And the, the Lord uh, now takes Peter's boat, and it's been drawn up on shore, and he's standing out there on this platform, and we can kind of picture Peter standing on the shore. Yep, he's using my boat. You know, that's, that's how I picture Peter. It's like, yes, uh, you know, he wanted the best boat here in the region of Capernaum, and of course he chose mine. You know, Peter's standing there, yeah, check out the lines of my ship. It was a little fishing boat. 
But Peter was standing there, and as Jesus rings out in his voice, he, he, he says, Okay, guys, launch your boats out. When was the last time that you listened to the Lord's voice with that regard? When was the last time you took a step of faith? When was the last time you did these three simple steps? Because from Peter's perspective, this guy's loopy. We've been fishing out here. The fish in the Sea of Galilee are tilapia. That's what's in the Sea of Galilee. And they grow very fast, and they're found in very huge schools. There are fish all over the lake, but the guys had been out at night, and they were fishing. They had caught nothing. They thought they knew better than God. That's the point. My experience says, my flesh says, my bank account says, my mom said, my dad said, my friend said, Pastor Jeff said, they thought they knew better than the Creator who created the fish. And so he gives them a little faith test. Peter, just to illustrate the point, says, you know what? And the phrase here is, he was maybe a hundred feet from shore. That's all the further. He says, push us out a little bit. He, he didn't, when it says in your Bible, push out into the deep, the deep in the Sea of Galilee is 50, 60 feet from the shore. It drops off precipitously. And so the deep started very close to shore. It wasn't like he was in the middle of the lake. So everybody's watching this, and Peter's going, okay, I'll humor him. I'll throw a net out. And he says three things. Thrust out a little from land. God's asking you this morning to thrust out a little from land. Take a step of faith. Trust out. Trust God. It may not even make sense in a human sense. It may not be logical in a sense of human logic. Has God asked you to take a step of faith and are you pondering it as you should? Are you willing to thrust out from land? Then he says the next thing. Launch out into the deep. It's another way of saying... Dare to do something you can't do. Go somewhere that's over your head is another way to look at it. Launch out into the deep. Do something that's beyond your own human ability. And then he says, let down your nets. That's the ultimate act of faith. That required faith on Peter's part. Because he'd already tested it with his flesh, amen? You see, one of the interesting things about our life here on this earth is as we experience the things that God allows in our lives while we're here, we know what our flesh can do and what our flesh can get, amen? You're always, well, I can do this much and I have this much money. How many people actually plan their lives rather than according to the magnitude of our Savior but according to the magnitude of their own personal abilities. It's a big difference between those two things. Because the magnitude of your Savior, Savior is this. He's Creator God. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. He is Jehovah Rapha. He's our healer. He's Yahweh. Sit canoe. He's our righteousness. 
He's asking us this morning, I believe, to thrust out a little bit from land. Take that step of faith. Get out into something that's a little bit deeper than maybe you want to go and simply trust the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because anybody can fish. Anybody can fish. The question is, who are you fishing for and what are you fishing for? You see, he was going to change their paradigm. He was going to shift them away from the way that they had been living their lives. And the Lord works like this in us. He does in my life all the time. But a lot of us are like Peter, kind of our own stubbornness. Amen? Well, I already did that. I went that way. It doesn't work, so I'm not going to try it again. You see, that's trusting you. That's me trusting me. That's not me trusting God. That's me trusting me. Now, that's not inherently evil. It may not even be sinful, but it's also not very fruitful. Amen? If I want bigger things from God, I need to trust God for bigger things. Deeper things. Richer things. The problem that we have is, is we settle for what we can get with our own flesh. And in this case, in Peter's case, in James's case, in John's case, it was a goose egg. It was nothing. They had gotten nothing from their flesh. Notice the difference when they began to trust the Lord. You see, here's Peter. He, he was sure he could handle things. After all, he had his Bass Pro Tilapia Master 5. You know, he's like, he's like, yeah, I just got this last week and I went down there and I... Got this amazing boat. He had his Bill Dance approved wonder net, you know. And he's like, look at this thing. It's the best net on the Sea of Galilee. And I stitched it all together. And we were out in our boat. And it's the best boat. And I got the best net. And we caught zip. I even had tilapia finder. You know, nothing. There's no fish out here. But notice what happens when. He steps out in faith. His faith wasn't even big enough to hold the harvest. You ever wondered why God asked us to pray to increase our faith? Because the harvest was bigger than they could handle. The net was totally full. It was so full that it began to sink their boats. And they could not handle what God alone had done. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want a harvest you can't handle? I do. I love problems to where we have problems that we don't have answers to. Now, I'm not saying that every moment of that situation is necessarily circumstantially good, but it's a sign that God's doing something. You see, I know I can accomplish things with my own flesh. I'm very confident that if I set my mind to something, I can generally get it done. But there are things I can't do. And that's where I have to take that step of faith and push out and go into the deep and allow God to say, Jeff, throw your net down. Because I want to bless you. I want you to reap that harvest. I want you to struggle with pulling in the harvest. he says, Peter, Jesus speaking to him, don't you know I created all the fish in this lake? 
I can always give you more fish, but there's something more important. I want you to catch men. I want you to win souls. I want you to focus on the eternal. That's the message. Peter, you've been focusing on fish, not fellowship. Peter, you've been focusing on the world and not heaven. Peter, you got a great heart. But your head's holding you up. There's a lot of people that have great hearts, but their head's holding them up. Because they're still trusting in themselves. They're not willing to push out from shore. They're unwilling to tap, take that step of faith. The book of Hebrews is so specific. There in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. But if you want God's best, it requires you have faith. You, you can't come to Christ without faith. You certainly will not be very effective at fishing for souls without faith. Because the very thing that's necessary in the person you're sharing the gospel with is also necessary in you. You must have faith that the gospel is what the gospel is, and they must believe in the gospel by faith. It's a step of faith. And so he says to them, Henceforth, from now on, you're going to catch men. And I love that. You know, it's very interesting that in the book of Acts, the very first story of the harvest of souls after the day of Pentecost is, guess who? Peter. 3,000 guys. That's men, by the way. That's the way they counted then. So who knows how many women and how many children. 3,000 people came to Christ from Peter's first recorded sermon. You see, he stepped out of the world and into the eternal. He said, I'm leaving this big boat of fish, and I'm going to begin fishing for souls. And I'm not telling you all to go quit your jobs. I'm not telling you go sell everything you have and you know grab a cross and wander down the freeway. I'm simply saying, make sure that what you're doing, you're doing in Christ as a step of faith. That there's an element of surprise to it. When we lose the element of surprise in the body of Christ, the wonder of following God, because it's wondrous, it's nuts. If I had mapped out my life when I was in my late teens, early 20s, none of the parts that have been the best parts would have been included. None of it. It's been a step of faith. We headed off to Austria. We got one-way tickets. What? We're going to go be Austrians. I'm going to get Lederhosen and Yodel. I'm thinking I can be the yodeling you know, evangelist of the Alps. Or so. I don't know. I'll get one of those cows with the big bell and we'll just wander around. Do you know about Jesus? You know, I didn't know. Didn't have any idea that the Lord was going to take me there and beat me to a pulp so that I could actually let loose of my own pride. That's why I wouldn't have put that in. Just like, Ooh, keeping that. You see, God works that way, mysteriously. Amen? And so he says to them, don't fear. From here on out, you're going to catch men. 
And then verse 12, he goes on for the second analogy, and they forsook everything and followed him. And so the picture is, they've now left the region of Capernaum, that little area on the north shore, and they've traveled to a certain city, highly likely that that was over on the eastern shore, probably Chorazin or Bethsaida. They've now moved, so this whole crowd is kind of following them around, and they're going to see what Jesus is going to do next. And when it happened that when he was in a certain city, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. Now the picture is this. He wouldn't have been near Jesus because they weren't allowed to be near anybody. A leper by Jewish law was required to cover their mouth and so that no one could see their lips move so that it could be determined whether they spoke the truth or not that they were to cry out, leper, 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 as they walked. So this man was an outcast. He didn't know what it was like to experience kindness. He also was on a journey of faith. And so it was that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Hear the voice of faith in that? Not if you can. I trust you, God. That's the voice of faith crying out again. And then Jesus does one of the most amazing things in the record of his journey around the sea. He does the unthinkable. Both for a Jew and a normal citizen who might be a Gentile. He does the unthinkable. He has compassion on an outcast. He touches a man who should not be touched. You you see, to the Jew, this was the, the stroke of God. And, and from the Jewish perspective, that man deserved to have leprosy. There was something so heinously wrong with his life that God had cursed him. And so Jesus was saying, all of your human tradition, all of your religion, all of your rituals, I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about broken and needy people. I care about souls. I don't even care about myself. Because without the miracle of the healing that was going to transpire, Jesus was taking the step of self-pronouncing a death sentence. For to touch a leper was to get leprosy yourself. And so he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I I didn't create hell for people. I created it for Satan and his minions. I've always had a desire to see everyone cleansed healed 
and immediately. As he says, be cleansed. Again, you see the creator God here, don't you? I created your body. I know every atom of every molecule, of every amino acid, of every protein, of every cellular system, of every organ, every structure. I, I know exactly what to do. Just touches them. Be cleansed. And then he charged him immediately after the leprosy left him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest. You remember when Jesus said, I haven't come to overturn the law, but to fulfill it? You see, he'd not yet died on Calvary's cross. And so he sends him, he says, you're a Jew. Let's use this to reach the Jewish people. Let's make sure that they get who I am. Don't tell anybody what's happened here. Let's go and see how we can make really good use out of this healing. Don't settle for less than God's best, family of God. He may yet have bigger things to do with you. And so he says to him, Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them. He says, I could take credit for it right here and now, but I'm trying to reach men with the gospel. Remember what he said? He said, I have to preach. All this healing stuff is good. This providing stuff is good. These feeding things are wonderful. But I am to preach the gospel. So if I take credit for this healing, sometimes people ask, well, why did he say, say nothing? Because if Jesus had taken credit for it, he would have never reached the priests with the message. He was going to take and economize this story. He was going to say, go, go talk to those guys. Let them see how they figured this one out. Don't you love that when God does things that nobody can explain? Our lives are a lot like that, aren't they? Make that offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more. <laughs> you see, he used both sides of it, didn't he? Okay, the man said nothing. He went to the priest, but everybody that saw it, they went and yacked about it. Jesus didn't tell them they couldn't talk. He just said to the man, I want the first person you tell to be a priest because they think they already got it. And a great multitude came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. You thought simple green was good, amen? You know, the, the Mr. Clean Magic Eraser. You guys have those? If you don't have the Mr. Clean Magic Eraser, you are missing out. Now, you can wipe stains off of anything with that thing. But Jesus is the master cleanser. He's the master cleaner. That's why First John 1 John 1.9 says what it says. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. Amen? From all unrighteousness, the stain of sin. You see, this man had been stained by sin. We don't know what kind of sin. Whether it was just indicative of the world's sin or your sin or my sin, as far as people were concerned, he was cursed. Isn't that what we were before Christ? Cursed? Amen? That's what you were, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? That's us. We have the stain of sin. 
And so this beautiful picture of what happens in this man's life was the stroke of God. It's a classic picture of sin. What leprosy does to the body, sin does to the soul. It's a real simple analogy. It's something that we can look at and we go, man, this is what happened to me. You see, I I was born in sin, amen? So were you. That's why when people come to me, well, I'm not a sinner. Well, your Bible says differently. You're a sinner. You may be a saved sinner, but you're still a sinner. You were a sinner before you met Jesus. You're a sinner after Jesus. The difference is you're now a sinner who's going to inherit the promises of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. The problem is, before there could be nothing done about your sin without Jesus. It remained. It stained. Matter of fact, some of us were so covered in sin, we looked like lepers. Amen? We're coated in it. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a mud bog truck race. But if you've ever been to one, they put these big, huge paddle tires on these trucks that have like 8 million horsepower. I don't know. They have thousands probably. At least a 1,000 horsepower. These giant lifted mud bog trucks. And you can be a spectator. You can be a 100 feet from the track. You're still going to get coated in mud. That's exactly the way the world is. Even if you're a spectator, even if you're not actively driving the truck, maybe you're not in the pit crew, you're not down there maintaining, making sure the mud's deep enough, you're not shoveling it yourself, so to speak, just being a spectator, you're going to get coated with mud. Our world's like that. It's a dirty place, isn't it? Sinners who need a Savior. That was this man. It's interesting to me that the first leper mentioned in the Bible was, guess who? Moses. Followed by his sister, Miriam. Two of the most famous righteous people in the Bible, amen? If anybody could have gotten to heaven by some other means other than the grace of God, wouldn't you have thought it would have been Moses? I mean, you talk about a dude who suffered long. You talk about a guy who went the extra mile. You talk about somebody who wandered this earth doing the best he could for his whole life. You would have thought that he would have been able to get there on his own. The Bible says about Moses, he was a leper. And he got cleansed. Family of God, I want you to understand something about leprosy. Up until the mid-1800s, it was completely incurable. There was no cure. You got leprosy, it was a death sentence. And the only way anyone ever overcame leprosy was miraculous. You had to be healed. So much so that if you know the story of Father Damien, who founded a little island community called Kalunapalapa on the island of Molokai in the Hawaiian Islands, They would take those who were with Hansen's disease, leprosy. They would bring them to within sight of the shore, also the site of the tallest sea cliffs in the world, rising nearly 5,000 feet in one mile from the ocean. This little tiny peninsula where this community of lepers lived. 
they would dump them with their possessions and their children in the ocean, the open ocean. And if they made it to shore, then Father Damien would take care of them. He's since been made a saint in the Catholic Church. He is also one of the two statues from the state of Hawaii that reside in the capital. Father Damien contracted leprosy from working with lepers. You see, it was a death sentence. And what humankind did was exactly what we were still doing 150 years ago. We dump people off in the sea of this world and hope they make it. But Jesus says, I'll swim you to shore. Grab hold of my back, I'll swim to shore with you. I'll make sure you make it. He says to this leper, we don't know how he was able to get that close, but my guess is it was kind of like the blocking back in football. Leper, leper. And people just cleared out of the way, and all of a sudden it's just the leper and Jesus. When you cry out, it's a beautiful picture of what happens when we believe and speak with our mouth. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. The way is cleared for you to stand face to face with your Savior. It's just the leper and Jesus. Same thing with you, same thing with me. What a beautiful picture. And notice what the leper says. He calls Jesus Lord. Master. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you can. Would you heal me? I know you can. It's a beautiful picture of the amazing way of salvation found in the book of Romans. It ends there in verse 13 of chapter 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Cleansed from the stain of sin. That was this leper. He's standing there face to face with Jesus. You see, he knew exactly what religion could do. He knew exactly what ritual could do. He knew exactly what human reasoning could do. And those things could do nothing for the leper. And they still can't. No amount of human religion, no amount of human reason, no amount of human ritual cleanses. Oh, for a while you may feel like you're okay. But the leprosy comes back. The stain remains. You see, he said, for it was unto a testimony unto them that he did these things. And you need not go there because I want to wrap this up this morning. But if you read in the book of Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, you find a hundred and nearly twenty verses of how the Jews dealt with the leper. In that, there is a very small portion of it. It's a ceremony that involves two doves, and I want to share this with you in closing this morning. Under the law, under legalism, under ritual, under religion, and under reason, these two doves would be brought together. One of the birds was slain. 
His blood was poured out. Its blood was poured out. The other bird was then dipped in the blood of the slain bird. And as that bird was then taken and that blood was allowed to coagulate and dry, it dripped with blood initially. But in order for it to fly, it would have to keep the stain of the innocent bird slain on the bird that was going to be set free. And then once that blood dried, that bird was allowed to fly off into heaven. Get the picture? So now you know why. He says, you go back to the priest and tell him you're a leper. See how they respond to Leviticus 13 and 14. Because everybody knows you were a leper. Everybody knows you're healed. And everybody knows the only way that you can be cleansed is the blood of a substitute. It's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? You see, they hadn't quite got there yet. But it was coming. And so the blood of the leper himself bore witness to the fact that he had been personally cleansed by the appropriating of the innocent's blood. And then that blood traveled up to heaven. It's just a picture of the cross of Christ. That's all it is. And so as this leper went back, he could look and say to the priests, I've already had my stain removed. And here's how it happened. I believed on the name of Jesus. And I was healed. Amen? Isn't God good? In all of these things that Jesus did, they were all a picture of what He wants to do for us. And I pray this morning that you're found in Him. Because His blood is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't need to be hucked out of a boat into the raging waters of this life. You simply need to call upon the name of the Lord. And for all who do, we will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're still Creator God, that you want us to be fruitful fishermen, and Lord, that you still cleanse lepers. God, thank you for that cleansing flow that blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your sacrifice for us. We pray that as we spend time this day just thinking on you, Lord, as we rest on our Sabbath, Lord, we give you the day that you would put into our hearts and our minds the thoughts of how we can better be fishermen, the thoughts of how we can use our cleansing for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.